Lord Jesus, you have much to teach us. You, you lived among us in an actual world filled with difficult people, so difficult that they, they meant and they actually succeeded because of your great love. They succeeded in killing you. And you're alive today in our world. You're our contemporary. So you have much to teach us about what life is and how love works. Give us the grace to listen and obey. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning. Last night we found out that Crosspoint loves tacos. If you're looking around and you're not sitting with your usual group of friends, uh, they, they turn their back on you, uh, essentially, for tacos. We had, uh, oh goodness, I don't know, we fed over 300 people last night in the Saturday night service. And so many times I heard the phrase, I love tacos. <laughs> Love's a strange word, isn't it? We talk about it in all kinds of different ways. Love my kids, love tacos. Hopefully not in the same way, right? Our culture talks about love. If you want to see a mess of a Wikipedia entry, don't do it now, please, but look up the Wikipedia entry on love. Whoever's in charge of the Wikipedia entry on love realized just how hard it is to get your arms around the way at least English-speaking Americans talk about love. We say all sorts of things about it. Today, Jesus is going to talk to us about love as we continue our journey with them through the Gospel of Luke, but I've been reflecting first this week before, uh, after I heard from Jesus, I started thinking and listening more carefully to people and our culture as we talk about love. We say things like, I love pizza or I love tacos, and then there was a group of young musicians who years ago told us, love is all you need. Hmm. True? Well, maybe. Um, I like to keep the lights on, too, and the, the light company steadfastly refuses to receive payment in love. They want, uh, they want money. Years and years ago, when I was first married myself, simply because there was no one more qualified available, I ended up doing pre-marriage counseling for a young couple that had not too great of a jobs, had already, even when they were single, one of them had already been through a bankruptcy, and a big part of premarriage counseling is figuring out how the finances are going to work, because that creates a lot of tension in marriage, as some of you may know. So when we got to that part, I gently started asking about their prospects and their plans and their budget, and the young man, with complete sincerity, no sarcasm, no irony, said, I love her, and we're going to live on love. <laughs> so romantic and so incredibly impractical because of things like landlords and bills. And then people say other things about love. For instance, here's one from long ago. Love means never having to say You agree? Listen, if you take that one to heart and try to live in a relationship where you never say you're sorry, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're not going to have a relationship for very long at all. How these dumb things get started, I have no idea. But I've been thinking about love because that's what Jesus is teaching on in our passage in Luke. 
Here's another fun one. All's fair in love and Why are love and war on the same footing? What exactly is going on? I mean, you think about it, no holds barred, anything goes in war. I kind of get that one, but in love, really? Try to live in a marriage where you can do anything you please. Not going to work. So we have a lot to think through and a lot you're going to discover, I think, very quickly, a lot to push against as you listen to Jesus. See, the point of being a disciple of Jesus is understanding that He's a real person. He's much more than a historical figure. Confucius and Buddha were historical figures. We have collected some of their wise sayings, but they died long ago, and as all men ever have before and after Jesus, except under His command, they stayed dead. They're relics of the past. Jesus, we've been seeing through the Gospel of Luke, proves that He is something entirely different than what people are accustomed to when they listen to spiritual teachers. Jesus is God Himself. He speaks with authority as no one ever has, and He does things that only God can do. And at this point in the Gospel of Luke, the religious machinery that is eventually going to kill Jesus is actively having meetings, planning what to do to get rid of Him. And Jesus knows it. So he's spent time with the crowds and he's spent time with a great number of his disciples, but in Luke 6 we're told he chooses 12 men especially. And he's going to spend the rest of his life before he of his own free will goes to the cross and submits to wicked men who intend to kill him. Before he chooses to agree with them and allow his own death and freely give his life away, He's going to pour Himself into these twelve and to the others who have decided to become His apprentices, His learners, as we have. If you're a Christian, if it's more than a demographic label to you, in other words, if you're really following Jesus, if you have a personal relationship with Him, what He's inviting you into is much more than a profession of faith where you say, this is what I believe. It's a loving relationship where you listen to Him, and you trust Him, and you speak to Him, and you do what He says. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to start talking in very plain language about love. And i got to tell you, right from the start, it gets very, very difficult. If Jesus were a baseball pitcher, I think you'd have to see him as a fastball pitcher who always starts guys off with one hard, fast inside. It's tough. And here's the danger of the passage I'm about to read to you. It's very tempting to do what I call hallmarkize the words of Jesus. In other words, to think that these are high-sounding ideals, that these look good printed on a multicolored card or maybe as a cross-stitch project hanging in Grandma's sewing room. But they certainly don't have anything to do with the real world because Jesus doesn't understand your world. He doesn't live where you do. More on that in a second. Let's start reading what Jesus said about love. And just to make it a little more interactive, I have an invitation for you, okay? I'm going to read slowly and clearly what Jesus said, and when it gets tough for you, I just want you to raise your hand. When you have questions or objections about what Jesus said, when you think that that sounds 
good but difficult, I just want you to raise your hand, okay? Don't say anything because we'll have a cacophony in here pretty soon, but do raise your hand when you encounter difficulty. Ready? I'm in Luke 6, verse 27. Jesus said this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. What, what's that? Okay, everybody, all right? That didn't take long. Three words in English. Let's keep reading, taking them seriously. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Last Sunday, I tried to show you that Jesus actually knows what the good life is. He's the creator of life. He doesn't stand outside of it. He is actually its source. And not only that, he was born of a woman in the and came into the world the way human babies always do, and lived with real people. So he knows what the good life is, and he's telling his disciples this is the way to live. But did you feel the tension? See, when I take Jesus seriously, when I take him out of a Hallmark card or off of an oil painting... If I take these words seriously and believe that He meant them to be obeyed, not just to be remembered or to put under glass somewhere in some beautiful Christian museum, but actually are meant to be lived out in the rough and tumble selfishness and hurt of actual human relationships with imperfect, selfish people who are primarily looking out for themselves, and I might get caught in the teeth of their selfishness, it's hard to take. Why is it so hard to take? Why did so many of you, and that's happened in three services now, I read Jesus' first commandment, and in three different services filled with people, everybody kind of laughed nervously. You know what that's about? That's hard. That's kind of absurd. That's kind of ridiculous. What would that even look like? question is, why is this... Why is this difficult? Well, because Jesus is giving us actually a core teaching, which is this. If you had to sum up this whole passage in one sentence, I think it would be this, at least for me, following Jesus, being His disciple, paying careful attention to what He's saying means that I love people who don't deserve it. And that's difficult. 
And he lays out all of these scenarios. People swear at you and curse you, you bless them. People hate you and take advantage of you, you treat them with goodness, you pray for them. People demand things from you, you give more than expect. People mistreat you, you give them an opportunity to do it again. You surrender your goods when you're asked and you don't expect that you're going to get them back and you take care to not only give to people who can repay you or reciprocate or somehow benefit you. Jesus says because everybody does that, there's nothing special and out of the ordinary. That's not the life of a disciple. You do it because you have a Father in heaven. Following Jesus means loving people who don't deserve it, and that's hard. Why is this so hard to take? Well, because immediately we know it's not fair. Why in the world would you love anybody who hates you? Just on the face of it, that doesn't seem like a practical idea, does it? Let's be honest. To be hated by someone, to be abused or mistreated by someone, and to respond with blessing and prayer, it's not fair. And you're also sitting there thinking, I know because I went through this myself and I talked to Jesus about this as I studied I thought about people who have taken advantage of me and my family, and I thought to myself, Jesus, if we take you seriously and we do this, they'll take advantage. Right? And the temptation is to think that Jesus doesn't know your ex, or doesn't work at your company, or doesn't have to deal with your shiftless brother-in-law, or whoever it is that drives you crazy. And it's so difficult for you to love. They'll take advantage. If I surrender my rights, if I treat people this way, they're going to take advantage. And the most practical question of all is this, how far do we take it? Because if you're listening to Jesus carefully, you're thinking about real scenarios and actual human beings that you have to deal with when you leave the sanctuary of this church. I mean, they didn't come to church, and they didn't listen to Jesus, so they are not going to account for it, even if they have heard it. Maybe they're the biggest hypocrites you've ever met. And if you tell them, hey, I heard I'm supposed to bless and love you and do good to you, and if you want anything, I'm supposed to give it to you, well, great, I'm glad you went to church. Here's my list of demands. And you ask yourself, inevitably, how far do I take this? Right? Is this making any sense to you? Well, to understand what Jesus said and what He meant, we have to begin with the example of Jesus Himself and account for other things that God has told us in Scripture. Here's one. Think carefully about the life of Jesus as, as best you know it. Did Jesus submit to every abuse that was ever directed at Him? No, He didn't. You can read in Luke chapter 4 itself, just two chapters back, he went to his hometown, he preached a sermon, and the big point was that God himself loves people outside of Israel who have no expectation and no right upon God for him to love them. And the people from his hometown were told in Luke chapter 4 turned on him with such anger that they went from admiring him and speaking well of him to getting up out of their seats in the synagogue and driving him from it and trying to throw him off a cliff you can visit in Nazareth today to kill him. And Luke simply reports that Jesus walked through their midst and got away. 
Jesus dealt with hatred and mistreatment every day of his life, practically, once it became clear who he was and what he intended. But, and this is really important to understand limits of how far you take what he said, you have to begin with his example. Jesus himself did not submit to every abuse and mistreatment that human beings aimed at him in his life. Yes, he ultimately would submit to the greatest injustice. Jesus is perhaps the first condemned man to willingly seek out his executioners to give himself up and surrender without complaint or objection, actually praying for the men who were killing him. That makes Jesus different. That sets him apart from anybody else. But for three years of ministry, he was choosy, he was wise, and he was not above defending himself and escaping the evil that men sometimes tried to do to him. If you're familiar with the life of the Apostle Paul, you'll see the same thing. Paul used the law and asserted his rights as a Roman citizen to get out of jail, to avoid mistreatment. On one occasion, he even appealed to Caesar. He used his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to the Roman equivalent of the Supreme Court. In Scripture, we have all kinds of realistic, because Jesus lives in the real world, we all have all kinds of practical instruction and further explanation of what it means to live the way Jesus is telling us to. I want, you to, show a real, I want to show you a really practical one, my mother's favorite verse when I was 13 years old. Hold Luke chapter 6. Now, let me show you my mom's favorite verse over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Just look forward a little bit in your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Take you back into my early teen years. Second Thessalonians 3, 10. Got it? You'll enjoy this. My mom certainly did. She, it, the Bible says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not, what? Eat. Well, that's in the Bible too. I couldn't, in other words, go continually to my mom and saying, I have no intention of obeying you or doing anything you say, but what time's dinner? Nope, nope, nope. My mom had read, as you should, her whole Bible, and she would quote this to me, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul gets even more practical, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is from Jesus. There's no contradiction to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And parents everywhere said, amen, right? Finally, something I can get fully on board with. This love your enemy stuff, not too sure about that. Telling my kid he has to sweep and pick up and do the dishes, okay. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks to a troubled, divisive, litigious church and says, you spouses who have been abandoned because of your faith in Jesus, you're not called in that marriage to slavery. God has called us to peace. You're free. In Romans 13, Paul explains to another ordinary church that the authorities in their life, the civil authorities, are equivalent of the courts and the police, are instituted by God, and that the authorities do not bear, Paul says, using imagery of his day, 
They don't bear the sword in vain. Today we might say a police officer's service weapon is not for show. Paul says those civil authorities have been instituted in culture to visit the anger, the wrath of God upon evildoers and to punish them. In other words, there's limits and there's shapes to the way Jesus intends us to love people in this self-sacrificial, gracious, patient way. Be very careful that you don't misinterpret or only take one thin slice of scriptural teaching and subject yourself unnecessarily, yourself or your family, to harm and danger and abuse. Paul says in 1 Timothy that if the head of a household does not provide for those of his own home, he's actually denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That means that I have a God-given responsibility, and it's my honor to protect not only myself but my family and to provide for them and shelter them. Nothing, in other words, of what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 6 is irresponsible. In the case of 2 Thessalonians 3, where my mom said, Bruce, if you don't want to work, you shouldn't get to eat, she was actually loving me. She loved me too much to continue in the irresponsible 13-year-old thinking that I can always and only do what I want and things are going to work out. They won't. God didn't set it up that way. So what was it exactly that Jesus had in mind? What Jesus is trying to teach here is something that is contrary to the natural human heart. See, every human being, everyone I've spoken to across this weekend is wired immediately to understand justice, especially if justice helps them. See, I love justice as long as it's being applied to somebody else. When it's the blue and red lights in my rear view and I notice that I'm 22 miles over the limit, well, I don't want justice. What do I want? Mercy. For the guy who blew by me, cut me off, and scared me, if I see him getting pulled over two miles later, <laughs> thank you for your service, officer. There's the servant of God with the sword. He does not bear it in vain. Enjoy that ticket. Enjoy traffic school, buddy. Every human heart is wired for justice. Think of it another way. Every human heart is wired for retribution. Jesus is saying this boldly, bluntly, clearly, over and over again, envisioning all kinds of different scenarios, you getting cursed at, you getting mistreated, you having money taken away from you, you being abused in a lot of different ways, to close off all the exits and to say this, in the everyday world, don't think of the extreme examples, I'm talking to you about the everyday world as you make your way through life. You are to love people who don't deserve it. And he's fighting against our natural wiring of retribution. Every human heart understands retribution. Nobody has to be taught to understand retribution. If you don't believe that, go to any preschool. The two-year-olds know exactly what's fair, or at least their version of fair, right? Hey, he got that toy yesterday. I don't remember who it was, but I remember the object of war was a blue plate. I think it was a friend of mine who had two boys. And there was one blue plate, and they both loved it, and there was a continual argument. He had the blue plate last week. 
I, in his case, would have either destroyed the blue plate or bought another blue plate. Because it was just this continuous war. They're tiny little kids. They can't write yet, but man, are they keeping track because the human heart understands retribution. Jesus is not trying to teach his disciples about retribution. That comes wired in, and that's intensified by selfishness. Jesus is trying to teach them about something entirely different, which is simply this. He's trying to teach them about grace and mercy, which is what I don't want to give. So, How does this work in the real world? Well, two simple thoughts. Love is shown. It's not just spoken. If you look again at this passage, you'll you'll see that what Jesus is commanding His disciples to do is actually practical. It shows up. It can be seen in the real world. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Do good to those who hate you. See the difference between doing good to somebody who hates you and saying that it's okay that they did it? What's harder, putting up with it or doing good for them? That was a real question. Somebody treats you poorly, what's harder for you to do? To say, that's okay, I'll put up with that, or to be proactive and do something good for them? It's much harder to do good for someone who is actually set out to harm you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In other words, someone swears at you. You're living your life as best you can. It is a disciple of Jesus. And what you get is a curse. You get sworn at. Jesus says your attitude, you return to them with actual words just as they cursed you. You return to them blessing. Here's something every Christian's ever dealt with that's taken Jesus seriously. He said, pray for those who abuse you. You ever tried that? Ever been continually mistreated by somebody and tried to pray for them instead? Mark the, mark the preposition, pray for, not against them. Praying against them, that's easy. God, they persecute thy servant. Thy servant has done no wrong, and yet here they are coming after one of your favorite kids. I pray that 10,000 fleas from a million camels each would infest every nook and cranny of their body and every single one of their belongings so that they would know that my righteousness is as the noonday sun and thy servant would be vindicated. That's a bit much, but that's the kind, that's the spirit of the prayer we like to pray. Protect me, deal with them. Jesus said, no, pray for them. Ask for God's blessing for them. Well, that's very difficult because love is actually shown. It's not spoken. If people's mistreatment of you has to do with money and possessions, Jesus says, let it go, surrender it. They want something, here's how to love them, give it to them. Not endlessly, as Paul shows us, not in a way that will ultimately do them harm, but love is shown, not just spoken. And the reason for this is, and this is where it becomes supernatural, This is where it becomes Christian and not self-help. Our standard for love and mercy, Jesus explains, is God's character, not our culture. Not the culture that I've developed in my own individual little human heart. Not the culture that tells me to get even and to balance the scales. Look at the end of the teaching. 
Jesus said, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's the famous golden rule, and it is distinctively Christian. It tells the disciples of Jesus to envision in every situation what they would want in a given, at a given time and to do that proactively for the other person. Let's make that practical. If you've done wrong and you want forgiveness and you ask forgiveness, what are you actually hoping that somebody will give you? Forgiveness. If you've come to the point of humbling yourself and asking for something from someone, what are you hoping that they'll do? That they'll give it to you. When you go out the front door, would you rather have cursings or blessings? Everybody wants blessings. Jesus says, don't wait to make it even. As my disciple, proactively go into a world that is mistreating you and doesn't understand you, and you proactively give them not what they deserve, but you give them the love and the mercy of God. Verse 26, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus lived on a whole other level, and He wants and expects and is in the business of teaching His disciples to do just that. Jesus says, if you love people who love you, there's nothing different than that. Even sinners do the same. If you only surrender your material possessions expecting to get them back, everybody does that. Jesus several times mentions sinners. That's Jewish shorthand in His day for the worst kind of people. Newsflash, if you've never dealt with truly evil people, I've had occasion as a pastor to go into situations where truly wicked people are, particularly in prisons, where men admittedly are, have done the very worst kinds of things, and even there you will find a little love, at least between them. They may hate the world, but they'll encourage and support one another. Jesus says, if you only love and treat with kindness and pray and bless and help and do good to people who have your good at heart, no big deal. Everybody does that. Even the worst people in the world do that. I want you to live on a higher level. I want your standard to be the character of love and mercy that is found in your Father who is kind and does good to everyone. And boy, is that hard. I want you to see it in Romans. Here's the real-life instructions in Romans chapter 12. We'll read the Bible together. Understand that Paul is no novice. He's not writing from an ivory tower. If Paul could be here with us this morning as he was with these kinds of believers in his day, you would find his physical presence, I'm sure, alarming. He had suffered so many beatings, he had been left for dead on at least one occasion under a pile of rocks after they tried to execute him for his belief in Jesus. He would have struggled to read the Scriptures. He probably would have needed help to get on this stage and every single one of those defensive wounds, every one of his abnormalities, every one of his deformities had been dealt by, to him by people who hated him because of Christ. So whatever else Paul is, you can't accuse him of being a guy who doesn't get it. Here's how that man said to ordinary Christians in a normal church like ours that we are to live. 
Paul said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. A little later he said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Look how practical the Bible is. Right there, Paul acknowledges that there are some people in the world with whom you cannot and will not ever have peace. If you have such a person in your world, I'm really sorry. There are some people that simply cannot be peaceable, but the Christian instruction, the responsibility given to disciples of Jesus is as far as it depends on you, you live with them in peace. In other words, if the bridge is going to be out, let them tear it down from their side. You keep the bridge up. You want peace. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Here's why we can live this way. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Read this next passage with me. Here's our instructions of proactive love to people who don't deserve it. Let's read together. To the contrary… If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the Christian mandate. If you live for retribution, you won't be a disciple. If your greatest goal is to make sure that the scales get balanced and your rights get defended, if you wait for them to make the move and you reciprocate with whatever it is that they give you, whether that's love or indifference, kindness or hatred, Jesus says in Luke 6, no one will be able to tell that you are a child, that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Everybody lives to balance the scales. You're to live differently. You're to live upside down, in reverse, proactively loving and giving kindness and giving prayer to God to bless and to help the very kinds of people who don't deserve it. That's difficult. You need Jesus Himself to do it. But the point of all this, folks, is this is what makes us Christians. Jesus said, if you'll look back with me at Luke chapter 6, He says, if you do all these things without an expectation of justice, he says in verse 35, love your enemies and do good, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be what? Now, if they're going to treat you poorly, who's going to reward you? That's a question you have to ask yourself. Where's your reward coming from? Who's going to give it to you? Your Father, your Father who sees every wicked deed aimed against you as it was aimed against His Son, every indifference, every hatred, every mean thing that is done to you, you repay it with kindness and love and prayer and blessing your Father who always does what is right and will someday make everything right. He will take note and He will be your rewarder. That's what makes the difference between people far from God and people who are following Jesus. And the question at the heart of this passage is simply this, does it really work? Can I actually live this way and see the good life? Can I live this way and see the power of God in my life? Here's the simple answer. If you know Jesus, it's because God loved you first. Christian, if you'll look humbly back over your spiritual history, you'll remember a time when God meant nothing to you. 
Maybe you believed in him, but you were pretty indifferent. He wasn't at the center. You weren't putting him first. You weren't running to him for mercy because you didn't really think that you needed it. Life was good. You hadn't done much wrong. But then at a specific moment in time, God in his great mercy opened your eyes to your spiritual condition. And you saw sin between you and God. You saw all the things that had separated you from God. For the first time in your life, you felt the absence. You felt the distance. You felt the alienation between you and God. So you came to Him and humbly said, I need you. I get it. Please forgive me of my sin. And something extraordinary happened to you. You received forgiveness, you received peace, you received assurance that your sins had been forgiven and someday you would be in heaven. The reason all of that happened is because you met Jesus and you met Jesus because the Father loved you. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why you're a Christian. That's why you pray to a Father in heaven. That's why you expect a reward someday in heaven. Now Jesus says, take that same spirit and the same gift of grace, not of retribution, but of grace, of mercy, of undeserved love, and you give it to the people around you who don't deserve it any more than you did when I went to find you. Yes, it works. There was a time in your life, if you're a Christian, where God overcame your evil with His good. Now He says, show the world that you're my child by going out into the real rough and tumble, ugly world where people get hurt and taken advantage of, and you proactively love them the same way that I love you. Because, folks, when we're following Jesus, part of what that means is loving people who don't deserve it. Can we make it practical for a second? Could I invite you to pray with me, please? As I'm talking about all this, if you took it seriously, I imagine some of you had names and faces come to mind, people who have mistreated you, who really shouldn't expect anything more from you. They've been bad enough. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve your kindness. They don't deserve blessing. They don't deserve your prayers on their behalf. If you're a Christian, could I invite you to take those names to Jesus right now? In both services, I talked to people who were crying because they took it off the page of Scripture and brought it into their real life. And they had names, they had situations where they said, this is going to be hard. I've tried this, I've done this in the past, and I'm I'm tired of it. It's hard to think this way, to continue loving them, treating them with kindness. That's the patience of God calling them to have the same kind of patience with other people. Who are your names? What faces come to mind when I talk about people who don't deserve your love? Who is it you think of? Take that to Jesus and say, I heard you best I can with what faith I have, I'll do my best to obey you in my relationship with them. I'll start praying for them. When they send me another mean text or email, cut me off, cut me up with mean conversation, I'll do my best to obey you and return blessing and kindness and good instead. 
That's for you, Christian. You are already following Jesus. And for those of you who don't know Jesus or you're not sure when it comes to the sin question, you're not settled, you're not at peace, you don't really know if you're okay with God, hear the good news. Jesus died and endured evil treatment from wicked people to take your sins on the cross, to pay for them. If you'll humbly say to Him, and this is the hardest part, Jesus, I'm tired of being my own boss. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. All of His kindness, all of His goodness, His grace will be given to you, and you'll trade lives with Him. Instead of your sin, you'll have His righteousness. Instead of facing spiritual death, you'll receive eternal life. If you do that this morning, just call out to Him in prayer. Say, Jesus, I get it. I'm sorry. Please save me. And if you do that, all I would ask is that you would let us know on that connection card because we want to pray for you and we want to follow Jesus along with you and teach you how to hear His voice and follow Him along with the rest of us. Lord, I pray that you'd deal with Christians right now and in families, in friendships, in jobs, in marriages, in relationships that are broken beyond repair, that you would show each individual disciple what it means to love people, those people who don't deserve it. I pray also, Lord, and most for those who were so close to trusting you as Savior, give them the grace and the humility right now to come to you and say they're sorry for their sin, ask you to be their Savior, and then profess you, Lord, claim you, own you, so that we can follow you together. Receive this offering, Lord. This too also is an expression of love. We give because we love. We love you. We love the gospel. We love people who don't know you, and we want to help reach them. Receive this in Jesus' name. Amen.